Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The center of presidential politics this week was the swing state of Michigan. Trump won the longtime Democratic stronghold in 2016, and Biden won it back in 2020. It will be pivotal again in 2024. And that's why both candidates flew to Metro Detroit on consecutive days this week to insert themselves into the United Auto Workers' strike against the so-called Detroit Three, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, the company that owns Chrysler. On Tuesday, Joe Biden, the self-proclaimed most pro-union president in history, appeared in Wayne County, home of Detroit, on a picket line with workers, something no modern president has done during a strike. His message, that UAW members deserve to raise now that their employers have recovered from the Great Recession. You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. On Wednesday, Donald Trump held an opposing rally in neighboring Macomb County. According to Trump, the real problem was Joe Biden's insistence on transitioning the industry to electric vehicles, something that, in the former president's words, has already sold workers out to China, environmental extremists, and the radical left. Now they want to go all electric and put you all out of business, you know that, right? When you unpack the politics of the two Michigan trips, a lot of big issues emerge. Populism, trade, the U.S.-China relationship, climate change, the long-running debate between environmentalists and unions, and questions about whether the Democrats or Republicans are the party of the working class. And there is one member of Congress who understands all of this better than just about anyone in Washington. Representative Debbie Dingell. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. In the House, Debbie Dingell is the key player when it comes to the UAW strike, advising, sometimes yelling at, Biden's top aides about how they should handle the strike, communing with auto workers in union halls whenever she's back home, mediating fights between the interests of environmentalists and manufacturers. When I stopped by her office in Cannon on Thursday morning to chat, I had to wait while she finished a seemingly fraught call with Gene Sperling, Biden's point man on the strike. It gave me a chance to take in some of the incredible history on her walls. This is a collection of photographs and autographs from presidents, starting with Franklin Delano Roosevelt to the Dingles. That's Dingle showing me around the place after she got off the phone. This gavel was used for Medicare. The big oh, gavel that was used for the Affordable Care Act. The Dingle family has long been an institution in the Democratic Party. The Dingle dynasty got its start in 1932, when Debbie's father-in-law, John Dingle Sr., won a seat in Congress. It reached its apex 50 years later, when his son, John Dingle Jr., chaired the powerful House Energy and Commerce Committee, from which he wielded extraordinary influence over healthcare, trade, energy, and environmental policy for 16 years. But it didn't come without a cost. In 2009, during Nancy Pelosi's second term as Speaker of the House, Pelosi backed an effort to remove Dingell as Energy and Commerce Chair and installed fellow Californian Henry Waxman in his place. Central to the blow-up was the Democratic Party's new emphasis on climate change, 
which was admittedly a second-tier priority for Dingle, a longtime advocate for Michigan and its carbon-heavy auto industry. John Dingle retired in 2015 and died in 2019. He still holds the record as the longest-serving member of Congress. Debbie Dingle, who married John in 1981, saw this history up close. She also won her husband's seat in the November election before he left office. She served as an executive at GM for three decades. In politics, she ran Al Gore's campaign in Michigan and sat on the boards of some of Detroit's most prominent institutions. When I came to Congress, I was very blunt that the country had auto fatigue. No one wanted to talk about the automobile industry for a solid decade. Today, she's still fighting some of the same battles that her late husband did. The ongoing UAW strike has similar stakes. The Biden administration's insistence that America has to transition away from gas-powered vehicles to address the climate crisis, and the UAW's concerns that its workers may get left behind in the process. Dingle and I had a wide-ranging conversation about these realities, including her honest thoughts about Joe Biden's appearance on the UAW picket line, whether the long-running feud between Democrats in Michigan and California is really over, why she thinks that Democrats may be in danger of losing Michigan in 2024, and why the biggest sticking point to the UAW strike is something you might not even have heard about. When you say the politicization of this isn't good, what do you mean? Because it's been heavily politicized now by Trump and Biden. We're sitting here Thursday morning. We just finished with the president's trip to the picket line which the White House touted as uh, historic, and uh, Donald Trump's visit last night. Let's start with Biden's trip. You were there. Look, if I hadn't gone, you all would have said I didn't approve. And I did. he was coming to show that he was standing with the worker. And I made that clear last week. He's yeah. been very strong in showing he's standing with the worker. And I think the question of whether he was going to the strike line was becoming a gotcha point. I do not believe he belongs at the bargaining table. I I don't think the strike is one that the government has a role to play in intervening, which is what I've said. He should not facilitating though maybe or but but I do believe policymakers and I don't believe it's just no facilitating isn't even a good word. We need to understand policy. Are they listening to each other? What kind of policies do you need for the transition? Yes, we can help make sure people are hearing what's being said to each other. You know, I'm even doing a, a, a little of that. That's okay. But what I fear is in the last week, and that's what you heard me saying, is that this isn't the presidential election between Biden and Trump. And too many people were trying to do that. The focus needs to be on the worker and the companies and the auto industry. And that this is about the future of the domestic auto industry in this country, the competitiveness and the worker that's the backbone and the key to the success of this industry. And we should focus on the issues at the bargaining table, not this distraction of two presidential candidates. What, um, tell us a little bit about your conversations with Biden when he, uh, when he touched down in your district. It wasn't a long time. It was good to see him. I did, yeah. I did not go to the picket line. Picket line was in my district. Why and not? Because it was for the workers. That was about the workers. And I told, I gave every other elected and said, this isn't about us. This isn't about you. And if I go, they, if I'd gone, other people would have. This was a meeting with 
Joe Biden and the workers, and we didn't belong there. Do you, in general, are you, is that your, your view that you, you're, you should stay away from the picket line? No, I don't feel, I mean, I haven't, uh, that picture, yeah, let, let's be real. It's very different when the president of the United States comes in and goes to a picket line than Debbie Dingell, who lives in Union Halls. But before the pandemic, since I have been in Congress, but it's not new, it was yeah. long before then, I am somebody that likes to be out. People, you yeah. know that about me. I, when I'm home for the weekend, it is not unusual for me to do 10 or 12 events in a Saturday. Yeah. And I, I very deliberately make sure that I'm always in a union hall on a weekend. I want that reality touch. But it sounds like you don't think it's smart for you, if you want to continue to be sort of an honest broker in this process to the extent that you can, that it's not wise for you to sort of be out there on the picket line because it sort of polarizes no, I've, I've spoken. No, no, let me be clear. I spoke at the rally, the UAW rally. Um, I was asked to then tell everybody I was going to go to the car show because everybody would know that I wouldn't cross a picket line. I thought people should have been a little more direct and saying that there wasn't going to be a picket line. But I think it's very different than Debbie Dingle, who people know. Uh, Like 900, local 900, where the strike happened at the first... um, uh, when the strike was announced in Michigan, I had just spoken there the week uh, week before. Uh, we have a tradition that I speak at Local 900 every September since I've been elected. So that wasn't anything new. And, I, you know, that night I ended up being temporary press secretary because nobody wanted to speak to the press and nobody was there. And I was like, okay, I'll go <laughs> tell people you're not, you know, I cooked You're very dogs. shy. You never talk to the press. <laughs> I cooked hot dogs. I was directing traffic. Yeah. But I know those. It, I, I know people. I, it, it's like I'm spending as much time sitting inside and talking to people about how they feel, yeah. what's on their mind. I want to be able to articulate it. But, but it's not a news story that Debbie Dingle's going to a union hall. My being in those union halls helps me be able to articulate to all of you what they're feeling, what they're thinking. All right. You've been in the middle of, of some of these conversations just since we've been in here talking. You've been on the phone with some of the key players. Just give us your understanding of where things stand between the auto workers and these companies. I think we're at some delicate points. I know what has to be addressed inside these contracts, which is the cost of living adjustment, elimination of tiers, job security. I think one of the most difficult issues that has to be addressed is the batteries and where the batteries are going to be made and how they're going to be made. And I think that's very much on the table right now. And it's about where the batter- where these batteries will be manufactured. And what people are going to be paid for and how we're going to make sure we stay competitive in this country. Does that involve any federal uh, regulatory role or is that strictly something that the unions and the automakers can negotiate? Well, first of all, the biggest problem is that most of this is not in the contract right? because most of the batteries are being built through joint ventures and that's not part of the master agreement. So that's why this is so tough. So you have to bring that into the contract. You can't. It is not right now the way that they are set up. That's not part of the contract. So that anxiety makes this complicated discussions. You know, most people don't know what goes into the master agreement, but as you, once you get past those issues, they normally, in the contract that's negotiated, the product is specifically listed for each plant, so you get a sense of 
what's got a future, what doesn't have a future. There's some very, very sticky issues wow. right now. So it gets down to really specific yes. plant-by-plant uh, issues. So these are tough times. Is, the things that tend to get the focus are the 32-hour work week, the initial 40% pay, pay increase in COLA. Those have been the sort of big headline demands. But what you're saying is where these batteries specifically are made well, is the— a- actually, where the batteries are made yeah. is not likely to be part of this master contract because they're mostly being made through joint ventures. All right, so how and does that get worked out? joint ventures aren't part of that. But so how, if you look at, okay, I'll give you two examples. Yeah. I have a Trenton engine plant that's in my district that I'm, I pray stays open, organized a rally to send a message, et cetera. That the Stellanis contract will either say there's product slated for that or there's not the future of the plant will sort of be spelled out in that contract. Got it. You've also heard a lot about Belvedere. So the Illinois members are fighting to keep Belvedere open and to have products slated for that. There's, you know, as you go to each company's contract has issues like that. The Marshall plant, uh, the battery plant that was put on pause Monday, is probably the only battery plant that would be part of the master agreement if it's not on pause. So that's why that becomes so significant and so important. So, and then the future of how you build these cars and do them, I'm sure are on the table. I'm not in there. But I think one of the roles that someone like me plays is to understand what kind of policy. So I had this bill in committee that passed in actually the implementing rules were issued the week before Labor Day of how to help man a plant transition to newer technology. The so that if you've got a Trenton engine plant and it's going to go to newer technology, potentially be part of the vehicle of the future, then Stellantis can apply for these DOE grants that will help them in the transition. So um those are the kinds of policy things that I can do. You also want to make sure you've got competitive companies. You've got a, we're competing in a global marketplace. And so as you have these discussions, and they're very, very tough, and the worker, it's really the worker's moment now at the table to bargain for their rights. You want to make sure that the companies are healthy so that They do have jobs. These are really, really, really hard moments. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the farm bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. So what happened in the run-up to you leaving uh, General Motors in 2008, 2009? All three auto companies were facing very very serious economic issues, which, quite frankly, uh, because I have friends at all three companies, I think another company saw coming 
uh, attempted to say to people, we've got some real issues, and I think people want to put their heads in the sand and not understand or accept it. This was on the cusp of the of the bailout, of Correct. the Obama bailout. There was a lot of opposition to the bailout. Nobody, bailout's not a great word in American politics. Give us a little bit of your view of the lessons that these companies learned from that uh, period in the Obama administration. It was a very complicated time. You need to remember that this really started with President Bush and Secretary Paulson hmm. and right. John Dinkle, who... It was the reason I left because it was those three men really understood what was happening and knew the impact that it would have on the, this country. It would have been an immediate devastating depression on this country had those companies failed. And while neither then uh, President Bush uh, wanted to have to do anything to help these companies, they knew the impact that it would have. So the initial work on this really began under Secretary Paulson. And I, I remember, I wasn't part of it, I was very careful, but those long late night calls when they saw what would happen and the number of jobs that would have been lost. And Obama's economic advisors, it was not a consensus of you inside the White House at the time to go forward with, with, with bailing them out. I think Austin Goolsby whether he was playing devil's advocate or he genuinely believed it, it was like, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do this. How involved with that debate were you? I was not. Yeah. But you, you, was, you had some visibility into it either at the time or I, afterwards. I, I mean, I, it's why I left the company. Yeah. And I certainly knew what was going on. I watched yeah. what the impact was. And when I came to Congress, I was very blunt that the country had auto fatigue. No one wanted to talk about the automobile industry for a solid decade. Because of the bailout. That, that just was total auto industry fatigue. And the auto industry did not have friends on Capitol Hill. But because of the post-financial crisis period Correct. where everyone was just like, enough with these guys. <laughs> and the auto industry still needs to. I'll be very candid. Yeah. The auto industry doesn't have a lot of friends on Capitol Hill. Why they, is that? Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's drill down into that. Why is that? On both sides, you mean? Oh, the Republicans right now are as um, frustrated. You know, it's interesting. If you, I'm not old, but I'm seasoned. And I have <laughs> the um, value of perspective. And, you know, I sort of sometimes sing, sing I've looked at life from all sides now. Uh, and one, people didn't want to talk about the auto companies, there was that fatigue, but the companies didn't work relationships hmm. for a long time in Washington. And so I started to flag to people when I came in, hey, you don't have relationships here and you've got to, and I made a promise. I made a promise to um, Joe Biden, actually he was vice president at the time, to Nancy Pelosi, who was speaker at the time, and to the environmentalists that, I was done with wars between California and Michigan and that I wanted people to understand the issues. I wanted us to be a competitive auto industry and we needed to work together to find the common ground to keep a strong industry. Just so listeners understand, California versus Michigan being California's aggressive auto regulations. There were many wars, especially during my when my husband was there, 
uh, over they, emission standards, over the, the, and it became geographical. Did it pit Pelosi and John Dingell against yes, each other a lot of time? It What's, certainly did. Just just to give us a little bit of the flavor of those battles, is there one story you remember about them? I mean, these were you know two of the most powerful Democrats in American history, frankly, right in the in the House. What's an emblematic episode of them going at it over on this issue? Probably the worst moment in my life, which was over the chairmanship of the committee. Having said that, mm -hmm. and for those that don't know the whole story, if you've lived it and breathed it, you use a few words and you think everybody knows what it was. But she challenged, she put Henry Waxman and ran against John Dingell for chairmanship uh, right after uh, President Obama got elected because they wanted to do more aggressive uh, environmental legislation, which, by the way, did not pass the Congress, and many think it cost us the House. I don't even get into that. Um, Nancy Pelosi became my friend. She and I uh, worked very hard to understand the labor issues. I want to say that to you. Nancy Pelosi became one of the best advocates that I had for understanding the labor issues understanding the issues of the companies. And in an odd way, uh, Nancy and I became very close allies on some of these issues about having a strong auto industry. And I think she took very personally uh, saving the auto industry in 2008 and 2009 and knows the importance of a strong industry. So lots to unpack here, but let's just fast forward a little bit to the, a lot. <laughs> to the to the Biden campaign, the 2020 campaign. Biden's putting together his policy proposals. There's a lot of conversations between environmentalists and the labor labor movement, um, with some of the auto industries, I assume, uh, being involved. As you're watching Biden on the cusp of becoming president and thinking through these issues and having this incredible history working on all these this stuff and, and seeing the sort of California versus Michigan fight that has been such a big part of the, the Democratic Party policy wars over the last few decades. What were you advocating for on the sort of as the Biden administration was coming in and you knew there was going to be a big push on these issues that you've worked on for years and years now? Just, just set the sort of table for so, the, that, de that, that debate in the Democratic Party. So I, I want to sort of put it into a time frame. I will remind everybody yeah. that I said that Donald Trump could become president in it, 2015 yeah. and 2016. And I and what, said it to everybody. What led you to believe that? Because I was in the union halls. And one of the things that Donald Trump is good at is understanding people's anxieties, their fears, yeah. playing to them, and by the way, using them as wedge issues. Trade. I mean, I, my, uh, trade had been an issue forever in my district. John Dingell uh, voted against NAFTA and continued to fight for the uh, workers on NAFTA, and Democrats did a terrible job of talking about trade in 215 and 216, which I articulated many a time. So he did get elected. Was there a moment when you thought that, oh, shit, Trump could win Michigan? So that moment was 2.15, the local 900 picnic. This is the moment that crystallized in my head. It's the first hall that went on strike. Got it. But it was 15, and we were at the picnic, and some of the guys came up to me and said, Debbie, we love you. 
but we can't support your girl, Hillary. There is no way we'll vote for her. And then later that year, I was at, and I go to a lot of UAW picnics. I was with the president, the then president, and I said, Dennis, we got a problem. Members don't like Hillary. And he goes, I know. So I knew it in 215. I knew it a year before the election. Tempted to talk to people, tempted to warn people, tried to get them to talk about issues that mattered. And unfortunately, it took a long time to even have those issues addressed. Did you ever, in that, in that era, did you ever talk to Hillary Clinton about what you were seeing in Michigan? You know, I'm lucky enough that people, I talk. When they come in, I, I, I let them know exactly what I'm seeing. But you saw it coming. I did. Well, fast forward to the next election. Biden wins Michigan, not by a lot, but he puts it back in the blue column. What were you um, worried about at the start of a Biden administration when it comes to the nexus of issues we're talking about, the sort of Green New Deal wing of the party, the auto companies sort of still having a bad reputation in, in, in Washington? I mean, you, know, you knew that some big fights uh, were coming. So I was very, very focused on them. Uh, so I wouldn't say during the Biden campaign. That was more... We talked about the division in the country and the threat to democracy. Yeah. But when he got elected, this fear that you're now seeing Donald Trump play to, and I, by the way, think he's got a lot of words and no action. He talks about building them 100% in China. Global climate's real. None of us can put our heads in the sand. And we are going to see new innovation and technology. And I became very committed. I told this was probably the most uncomfortable year of my being in Congress, because I did not sign on to the Green New Deal, because the union members had not been at the table. And I was very clear with AOC, who's my good friend, and others, that unions had to be at the table. So I put together a table, uh, had a meeting that the heads of all the organizations came to, NRDC, LCV, EDF, I'm giving you all the, yeah. for the listeners that don't know, no, I know. Environmental the major Defense Fund. environmental yeah, yeah. groups. Yeah, and this is, what year are we talking about now? We're talking about 2021, or we're talking about pre uh, He was elected, so it was 2021. Yeah. It was uh, uh, February yeah. of 2021. This is when the most aggressive Democratic priorities are being, are being pushed. That, and then labor was at the table. President of UAW himself was at the first meeting. I worked with... And actually, John Podesta was still at CAP and became the facilitator of the conversations. Got it. Trying to like bring together and it was, the different factions of the party. It wasn't factions of the party. It was the environmentalists and labor. Got it. Just this, one, this one debate. Yeah. would be brought in later. But I had to bring those two factions together. You know, I always people... I do believe in trying to bring everybody together. John Dingle taught me a long time ago, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> Listen more and talk less. And I try to bring people with disparate perspectives together and find that common ground. It was tough. How ugly was, was the, how divided were, were they at that point? I th- would say to you that people came to the table with the desire to find they knew that each other had strong perspectives. And, you know, UAW was worried about jobs, et cetera. But there was an August Rose Garden ceremony that was the culmination of that work where after we had found common ground and 
OEMs, the OEM for is an original equipment manufacturer, in other words, the car companies, yeah. uh, agreed. You'll remember there was a Rose Garden ceremony where the target was announced of a goal of 50% sales of electric vehicles by the year 2030. Yeah. And that was an output of those conversations. Quite frankly, the UAW almost walked away two days before. Those were the hardest. Right two, before the Rose Garden ceremony. Before. Yep. Wow. What was the big issue? What was the issue? We're worried about jobs and Just, worried yeah. about, you know, the things that you're still worrying about. How did that get smoothed over? We all talked. There was a road ramp off. Um, I talked to my mentors to express what their concerns were. I went back. I, I do what I do. I talked to everybody, found how do you assure that you're not going to devastate workers' jobs? How are you, you the environmentalist, going to make sure you're not doing that? And we got it done, and everybody gathered in the Rose Garden, and that agreement was made. And I think what you're watching now yeah. is Donald Trump knowing that there's an anxiety, but his, he's trying to create more wedge, wedges. He's trying to create anxiety and fear and put kerosene on a fire. You don't think he's being solutions-oriented? He's not being solutions-oriented at all. His answer is, if you do this, we're going to make them 100% in China. My answer is, hey, we've seen Hawaii and Florida, but come to my state. You know, the same week we had those fires and the hurricane in Florida, there were seven tornadoes in my state. Four of them were in my district. There was a storm the night before that flooded half my communities. Nobody talked about it because of the bigger scene. Global climate is real throughout the country. And the heartland where this manufacturing is happening we're seeing flooding. We are seeing the devastating consequences, so we can't ignore it. But we got to be part of the new NIC technology. We have to figure out how we are going to prepare where this new technology is going to be, the innovation of technology, but how the workers are going to be part of the solution and be protected. So um, this is all. This is really fascinating to hear your perspective, and I. I know that you had visibility into the, the run-up to this strike. So tell us a little bit about um, how th this, unfo this unfolded this year. Well, I want to be clear yeah. that when you, you hear some of what I said, I knew there was a labor problem a year ago, uh, a labor day. I, I am, I'm just going to be honest, I'm not somebody that says, oh, the camera's in front of a picket line and goes to that hall. These are my homes. Yeah. You know, when my husband died, UAW got me through it. Hmm. The last place that John went publicly, uh, Chuck Browning, who's now the UAW vice president for Ford, was the regional director. And I called up Chuck and said, Chuck, John just wants to get out and come be. And we went to Region 1A, and the 1A members were the last public place he was before he died. These are my family. And when he died... Those guys, the men and women there, got me through. They made sure I was never alone. When I needed to cry, they were there. When I got scared, they were there. These are my brothers and sisters. I go to these picnics, and I go into the halls. I've had some of the toughest town halls where people tell me the truth. They ask me. They don't, they're not mad at me, and because they know I don't take personal offense. Right. They tell me what they're really thinking, and trust me. It can be tough. So, and then Labor Day last year, I, I, it was the first time coming out of COVID in the pandemic. 
And it wasn't just unions. I mean, it wasn't just the UAW. I was with the teachers and SEIU and the laborers and the operators. I, the Labor Day, I'm with carpenters, everybody. And, I'm, and I knew we had a problem. The workers were just concerned. Does somebody care about me? They were worried about their jobs in the transition. Now, I would tell you that, and I'm, by the way, on another tour this fall. You know, it was hard because you couldn't go in union halls or be with people for a couple of years. And the union meetings are just, I had some last year. A couple of them were pretty tough. Um, I guess they were mad at Washington, at the administration policies. But um, I would say to you that the building trades is they now see they're getting fully employed again. The bipartisan infrastructure law, we're building those roads and those bridges. And, you know, we're starting to do broadband work. The pipe fitters, we're starting, we've got places we're getting the lead out of pipes and replacing the pipes. So you're genuinely, I mean, you, you're genuinely seeing the impact of the infrastructure law. It's uh, and, not- but seeing it in the halls where guys know it and yeah. women. Yeah. Those jobs tend to be more of the of the guys. You're hearing that. Um, but you also hear the anxiety about what's my future if you're an auto worker? Am I going to have a job? Are they going to ship these jobs overseas? There's more, look, the... Um, the the Maki electric vehicle was supposed to be made at my Flat Rock plant, and it's being made in Mexico. So trade continues to be an issue, and they're worried about what's going to happen on the the EVs. But there are people that really know that there are people fighting to make sure they are part of that transition. And it's not either or. They know that they can do both, but they need to know that there are people watching out to make sure that they are taken care of. How much, I'm going to simplify here, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but the argument from the White House you hear is a tight labor market and the Bidenomics has helped the UAW, uh, has strengthened their hand, and it's what it's allowing them to um, strike and demand higher wages. Wouldn't be able to do that if unemployment was, was higher. The argument you hear mostly from Republicans is, the Biden administration is responsible for the strike because of these EV mandates um, and you know decimating the auto industry through pushing uh, a car future that requires um, fewer workers and uh, battery plants that are going to be either in China or the non-unionized South. In these union halls that you visit back home, are the which of those arguments kind of dominates? You know, I'm going to tell you, this is last week when we were supposed to have votes, and then we didn't. I just went home to 900 and spent the day there. And I was sitting at a table with three of the guys. Um, one of them's families had worked for Ford for 100 years. Four generations of people had worked for, for wow. the Ford family. Couldn't believe that they were on strike, but felt they had to be on strike because he was working a second job just to be able to keep his family going. He hadn't had cola. That's what most people don't understand, mm-hmm. that when the hard times came, when the bankruptcy, the, we didn't go in bankruptcy, but when they almost collapsed, um, uh, it, that the workers gave up their cost of living, and it hasn't been restored. So in real terms, yeah. they are making 10% less than they were making in 2008 and 2009. 
And he talked that day about, you know, work, he, he was working for the company then, so he's working at a higher tier, but how we feel sorry for the younger person on the line that's making significantly less than him. And also talked about temporary workers and that people could be temporary workers for eight to 10 years and they're not getting benefits. And he loves the Ford family, always wants to work for the Ford family, thinks Bill Ford cares about them, hmm. but knows that they're real things that they're fighting for. Uh, uh, the gentle, gentleman on my left, uh, quality manager, the union side of the plant on the quality management didn't feel like management listened to him, that he knew where there were things that would cause quality problems, redesigns, would take away, thought people tried to hide it, that there were things that maybe they didn't value Hmm. him as much. And the uh, third worker was... Never thought there'd be a day that there'd be a strike at Ford, but that the core issues are so important. Then somehow at the end, it got to Biden and Trump. I was sitting at a Trump table. All three of them were supporting Donald Trump, which is unusual. They were all treating me with full respect. And um, uh, they don't like the politicization of this strike. I've tried to tell people a year ago we needed to understand how workers are feeling, that they see money going to the corporations and they want to make sure it's getting to the worker. Who is watching out for the worker? My gut's a pretty good. Nobody likes it. Everybody wants to ignore it. But I, my gut's been pretty accurate. If you look at my record over the years of my predictions and elections where things are going, and it's I, it's just because I talk to people and you get that gut. So when I was young in this, and I was very young. Less seasoned. Less seasoned. Um, <laughs> a lot less seasoned. <laughs> Gasoline prices were high. Do you, We lost. Our, the domestic companies didn't see consumer demand shifting for small cars. And we lost it. We yeah. lost part of our market we have never recovered to the Japanese. We are competing in a global marketplace. We are not just, it's not just, oh, Donald Trump doesn't like EVs, don't sell them. They're going to happen. And we got to be ready. So we have to make sure that here in America, we are ready for, we've always led the world. We put the world on wheels. And I want to stand at the forefront of innovation and technology. I want the vehicles of the future being made here in America by American workers with good paying union jobs. All right, let, just to, to wrap up here. And I know one of the, your your uh, the things you've been saying all along here is that this should be depoliticized. It shouldn't be about Trump and, and Biden. Um, on the other hand, you predicted that Trump would win Michigan in 2016. I don't know if you thought Biden would win it in 2020, but he did. What's the just give us your assessment of the politics once this strike ends and there, there is an agreement, and we assume that's going to happen. What's the um, How vulnerable is Biden in general uh, in Michigan this next time around? Why don't you ask me how vulnerable is Trump in Michigan? (laughs) Here's what I I really have said to people. We need to get this this contract negotiation finalized because in my lifetime, this is the most important contract negotiation I will have witnessed Hmm. because it is about the future of this industry, this contract these three contracts will decide 
the competitiveness in the future of these industries and the workers' role in them and the recognition of the importance and the backbone that they are to both this industry but to this country. After that, then we can move into the candidates uh, in the presidential elections. I have said this repeatedly. Michigan is not a blue state. Michigan is a purple state. It will be a play, and we will have to do a far better job in showing people how Joe Biden delivered his actual actions that have made the economy in Michigan stronger, delivered more jobs, and how Donald Trump has made many promises and not delivered on them. If the election were tomorrow, you think Trump or Biden would win Michigan? I'm not even going to go there because I don't think we should be having this discussion today, and I'll have it after we get yeah. these negotiations closed. But, I mean, it will be as competitive as it was the last couple of times. It'll be competitive. Yeah. Michigan's a competitive state. Congresswoman, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot. We, <laughs> we could spend the could whole spend a lot day more. I know. It's uh, a lot. You going through this history. I really appreciate it's it. It's a lot. And that's our show. Our producer is Kara Tabor. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Playbook Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.